This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 you are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? In today's episode, we hear the story of Abraham being commanded by the scriptural God to sacrifice his son, Isaac. This is a very famous story from the Bible, and it is used by various different people to make various different assertions about God and the Bible. But today you will hear from us not an assertion, not simply another manipulation of the biblical story, but an explanation of the biblical story. We cannot use the Bible for anything. We can only listen to it and choose whether or not we will align our behavior with God's will, which is found within it which is the very thing that the biblical character Abraham is commanded to do in this chapter. Come and hear the story. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. The first thing to note is the important expression that Isaac is Abraham's only son. The word only in Hebrew is yachid, which is obviously related to the word echad, meaning one. Interestingly, this word is missing from the Septuagint, but it shows up in the book of Hebrews, where Paul directly translates it to monoyenis. Monoyenis often gets translated to only begotten, which, of course, is an appellation which gets applied to Christ as having been the only begotten son of God the Father. One might ask, what about Ishmael? Well, quite simply, Ishmael was not the son of promise. Isaac was. So Isaac, according to the scriptural deity, is Abraham's only offspring, his monoyenis, Next, God tells him to take him to the land of Moriah and to offer him as a burnt offering. This is absolutely striking. If you think about this literarily with everything we've heard so far, this direction in the narrative is really fascinating. First of all, it adds some more context to Abraham's name as being the father of the Raham, the emaciated lamb for the slaughter. Isaac is, presumably at this point, taking on this role. It also has a humor to it that Abraham's only consistent petition to God is to have his own offspring. But when God finally gives him what was promised, Abraham's test is to see whether he can sacrifice what he loves the most. 
In other words, Abraham has to prove that he is willing to carry out God's will as an obedient slave, even if it circumvents his own will. Abraham has to trust in God's command, even if he can't see how it'll play out. After all, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The unseen here does not mean the supernatural or the spiritual in some ethereal way, but literally not seeing where the shepherd is taking you. No, you just have to follow and trust because as a sheep in the hostile Syrian desert, that's all you can do. The land of Moriah is also really interesting. Discounting the Nikud vowel pointings, since those came later, another acceptable pronunciation here could be Mariah. Mar in Hebrew means bitter, so the meaning of Moriah could be Yahweh is bitter, in the sense that what Yahweh is asking of Abraham is embittering to him. Again, it's like the reading from Revelation that Rowdy and I set for the intro. God's command is sweet in the mouth and bitter in the stomach. Abraham is feeling this. The gift of Isaac is sweet, but the sacrifice of Isaac is bitter. But this, this is all about submission to the will of God, whether it's easy or difficult. And this is what is embodied in, in Isaiah's mashal, of the suffering servant. This servant will do nothing except what is according to God's agenda. This is expressed in the life and death of Jesus Christ, of course, but we see it strongly with both Isaac and his grandson Joseph later on. This point is actually interestingly expressed in the Quran of all places. Now, don't get excited positively or negatively about me mentioning the Quran. I'm just making an observation here. But in, in Surah 37, there is a retelling of Abraham's sacrifice of his son. And when he has the command to do so, he tells his son about it and asks what he should do. His son simply says to do whatever he was commanded. That's really astounding, honestly. What's even cooler is that the Quran doesn't name this son until after the story where it says that God gave Isaac to Abraham as a gift for his faith. In other words, Abraham couldn't have the gift of Isaac in the progeny until he obeyed the voice of the Lord. What a powerful retelling of the original story found in Holy Scripture. It really drives the point home. I like that you made the point about Moriah referring to the theme of bitterness and the general bitterness of this situation. I think it's supposed to make even the hearer bitter as well. This is a strange commandment from God that does not seem to be in line with the rest of his character in the previous stories, and that should vex us. Why would God command the slaughter of a human child? Let alone the fact that the one committing the slaughter is the boy's father. This difficult story is even more difficult to hear in the original Hebrew and lends more insight into what exactly is going on. And we'll certainly get more into the nature of sacrifice and burnt offerings when we get into Leviticus and the rest of the Old Testament, but by and large, a burnt offering was an offering of an animal that was burned on an altar entirely, in contrast to other sacrificial offerings where a portion of it was eaten by the priest or the sacrifice giver, symbolizing a table fellowship between the human and the deity. 
However, in a burnt offering like this one, the smoke from the offering would go up to the deity, which is where the term in Hebrew comes from. Burnt offering in Hebrew is olah, which literally means that which goes up. Abraham is specifically instructed to offer up Isaac as this kind of offering, not a general sacrifice. This is important because the imagery is very extreme. In fact, in a few verses, we hear about the knife that Abraham takes to do the deed. This word in Hebrew is a unique word because it only appears five times in the entire Old Testament, as opposed to the much more common word for sword. The word used in this story is ma'okalet, which comes from the verb akal, which means to eat. So this knife is specifically used for the slaughter of an animal in preparation for eating it, or in this case, offering it up as a meal for a god to eat through the smoke of the burnt offering, because that is the point of a burnt offering. The animal is being consumed by the god through the aroma of the smoke from the burning of the carcass, because as it burns, the material of the animal, the flesh, diminishes through its physical disintegration from the burning fire, thus being quote-unquote consumed by the god. As Blaise said, this is a really interesting literary decision. We've got the idea from previous chapters that this Elohim capital G God is different than the other Elohim little G gods of the surrounding culture. But what he is commanding Abraham to do here is apparently right in line with the behavior and traditions of the surrounding cultures. We eventually see that he is actually vehemently opposed to this type of ritual. But for the purposes of the story, like Blaise said, the whole point is to test Abraham's level of obedience. Will he willingly give up the thing most important to him simply because his master commanded him? Does he love this God, or does he love his son and what he means for him and his wealth? Does he serve God or mammon? That's the question. Yeah, man, that is the question posed in the entire corpus of Scripture. I also want to note that the same root for bitter in Hebrew also has the connotation of rebellion. It makes sense. When something is bitter or uncomfortable in some way, we tend to reject it. You can get the sense that the authors are conveying that Abraham could rebel at any time. The word Moriah is just so foreboding when you hear it like that. Precisely. And we modern people who are born into a militant culture, especially one like America's where the military is outright fetishized, our natural desire would be to cheer Abraham on if he rebelled against such a horrifying commandment. And that is exactly the attitude that many people take toward the Bible. They hear scandalizing stories such as this one and they rebel with their minds and hearts before they even hear the point. So let's not get carried away like I seem to be. Let us just continue to hear the story. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. The power in this section is Abraham's statement that the Lord will provide the lamb. Now, I'll let Rowdy talk about the Hebrew later, because there is a lot to that word that gets translated to provide. But regardless, it's astounding that Abraham finally acknowledges that he has no ownership over the son that God has gifted to him. 
Again, that desire for human possession is the overarching sin that went back to Eve. Not so with Abraham. This son is God's inheritance to Abraham, but Abraham does not now own that inheritance. It's a privileged position. It's like being a manager at a company. You're not the boss, but you relay his message to the employees and become his mouth functionally. This boss may give you the keys to the building, but the building is not yours. You can be replaced, and you will be replaced if you don't do what is asked of you. It's really that simple. This is Abraham's final exam, if you will, and that is the point of this story. People tend to be scandalized by this, as if it's cruel of God to make Abraham face this kind of decision. But it's literature, guys. Abraham has spent his entire story desiring progeny, and once it's given to him, he has to pledge his loyalty to the one who granted him that gift, not the gift itself. It's a mashal for instruction, nothing more and nothing less. Yeah, and that's not just your cleverness that allowed you to discern that. There really is a literary direction being taken by the authors to draw a parallel between Isaac and God, in order to illustrate the choice Abraham must make as to who he will obey. We have this pattern in verse 1 where God calls to Abraham and Abraham says, Here I am. And in verse 7, Isaac calls to Abraham by saying, My father. And Abraham answers him by saying, Here I am. This pattern appears elsewhere in scripture, but this chapter is the first time that it does occur. And it occurs twice. First with God, and secondly with Isaac. Clearly, this is to juxtapose the two slave masters Abraham is strung between. In this test, he will either choose God or he will choose his progeny. I'm going to stop you right there because I just want to say that that is a really, really astute observation. I've never heard anybody say anything about that. So, yeah, Rowdy's Rout, a smart guy. You should listen to him. This fuel fuel really my good. ego, Blaze. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really smart. I, I like it a lot. Very, very good uh, observation. I also want to touch on the strange translation of the key phrase in the passage that we just read. When Abraham says God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, it doesn't actually say that in the Hebrew. It says something to that effect, but there's no word that means provide. Rather, the word that gets translated to provide is the word yere from ra'ah, which simply means to see. There's no special verbal form here or anything else that would allow such a special translation to a totally unique word. What's more is that this is the only time in the entire Old Testament that this verb, to see, which is extremely common, is translated to provide. So it literally says, God will see for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. I don't want to overcomplicate the matter, but I can't ignore the fact that when most people read this verse, they will never even get a glimpse of the original intent, because providing and seeing are two totally different things. And without the original word being translated properly, our interpretation of the story is just totally different. In fact, from what I've seen, the most common interpretation of this story is that Abraham was clever enough to know that God would provide a different sacrifice because he was smart enough to remember God's promise and that killing Isaac would render that promise null and void, which God cannot do because God is omnipotently powerful and totally morally good and therefore cannot lie. That's just silly. It's completely wrong. Any time we hear a story in the Bible and we come to the conclusion that the human characters were successfully clever or witty enough 
to keep up with God, we need to take a few steps back and reconsider. We should commend Abraham, but not for the reason many of us would expect. In this particular story, when you look at the Hebrew, there isn't even evidence that Abraham thought what this very common interpretation claims he thought. All he says is that God will see for himself the sacrifice, which means that whatever God commands to be sacrificed will be sacrificed. Or more literally, anything God sees is a candidate for being sacrificed because God is over all things. It's very simple. We don't have to go down the rabbit hole about the psychology of Abraham and all this nonsense. And the verb, as it appears in the text, is in the imperfect form, uh, which generally gets translated to the future tense, whereas the perfect form gets translated to past tense. But the context determines the actual meaning of the word. Uh, it's not always just simple future tense, and you can normally tell if by translating it into the simple future tense, uh, if it doesn't make sense, then that's probably not the, the meaning or the intent of the authors. Like a situation such as this one, which literally says, again, God will see the lamb for the burnt offering. That doesn't really make a lot of sense, uh, given the context of the story, for Abraham to answer his son in this way. Um, so oftentimes, imperfect uh, verbs can have what's called the jussive force, which simply means, like, as an example, let it be, or let this happen, or let it be such that. Um, so if we apply that here, it's even more evidence of the point that I'm trying to get across. It's Abraham saying, uh, let God look upon the sacrifice. Let God see for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So when you take all of that into account, it's pretty clear uh, that Abraham is telling Isaac pretty directly that Isaac is the sacrifice for the burnt offering. And on top of all that, we have to stay in line with the teaching that has been developed through the various stories that led us to this story. Abraham has been learning about the universal control that this God has and that his progeny should not be his main concern. So here in this story, his single progeny unit, Isaac, who is playing the part of progeny temptation, asks Abraham where the sacrifice is, and Abraham answers him like a father teaching his son about this God. Abraham tells him that God sees for himself the lamb of a burnt offering. Therefore, the only thing present that even can be seen to be sacrificed is Isaac. There's really no way around it if you're being honest with what the text is trying to say. Isaac accepts this because, as we will soon see, his entire character is defined by a strict obedience to God's commandments. So again, let's not get psychological and play around with the text. This isn't a story about a father and son's struggle. It is not a story about human cunningness. It is a story about God commanding Abraham, the father of the emaciated lamb, the father of the mercy womb which houses God's coming people, to sacrifice his son the promise of, and the vessel for this coming people. Because if Abraham is willing to do this, then he has fully bought into the ownership God has, and he has proven to be completely obedient to his master. Abraham has been defeated, and this is the story of his defeat. Abraham has proven time and again that he perhaps cannot be trusted with God's power. He's very wishy-washy in the way he conducts his behavior toward the outsider. God's main concern is the outsider. So God commands him to slaughter and burn the very thing that would preserve the favor and promise that he gave to Abraham. He's taking away the gift, the inheritance. Then, instead of tucking his head and running off in order to preserve Isaac's life, which is God's positive influence over Abraham's life, 
he accepts God's direction and submits to the consequences that he has brought on himself. Nothing more, nothing less. It's very clear. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is to this day. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. I do want to point out really quick, I don't have much to say on it, but I just noticed the fact that God does not command Abraham to sacrifice the ram in Isaac's place. Uh, It's not really even implied that that is the case. It just says that Abraham went ahead and did it. I'll reread the portion so you hear what I'm talking about. In verse 12, it says, The angel said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So, again, I don't have a lot of elaboration, but it is pretty interesting that there wasn't really any commandment or expectation for Abraham to continue uh, the sacrifice, but he just did it. Yeah, and another interesting aspect of this story is just how obedient Isaac is in this situation. The authors seem to purposely leave out any resistance by Isaac. He is obedient to his father without seeing the outcome, and thus is obedient to God. This will become a theme in Isaac's short story, and short is key because there's not much to say about him except that he consistently obeyed the voice of God. This understanding is, as I showed earlier, expressed powerfully later in the Quran. Isaac is totally submissive to the will of the scriptural deity, even if it costs him his life. And that is one of the key attributes of Isaiah's illustration of the suffering servant. And we see it beautifully at play here in Isaac's non-behavior. He doesn't do anything. That is the point. When God finally stops Abraham through his messenger, it is clear at this moment that it was the litmus test of Abraham's faith. Just hear the text again. I know now that you fear God, seeing that you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. That's it. It's that simple. God has total ownership. This has been expressed so many times in the book of Genesis, from the covenant of circumcision to even the twofold name of the deity himself, Yahweh Elohim, the all-encompassing God of gods who makes things to be functional, the great functionator, as it were. And here, Abraham not only grasps mentally in terms of belief, he actually changes his behavior and acts accordingly. Thus, we have, even this early on in the Bible, a clear scriptural paradigm for faith. Forget the works versus faith nonsense. You can't truly have faith if you don't do work. 
That is clear from Abraham's story. He did not earn Isaac. Isaac was gifted to him by God. But to be declared righteous by God, he had to hear God's voice. And then this is the important part. He had to do as he was commanded. It's literally that simple. Finally, the appearance of the ram is meant to illustrate concretely the connection between the person of Isaac and the name of Abraham. Again, Raham need not specifically refer only to a lamb or a goat. It's functional. It's applied to a life that is taken for a sin offering. God provides, presumably, this Raham to Abraham and allows him to keep his gift in Isaac. It's a powerful story. Thus, we get a new sense for the name of the mountain Moriah as being reflected in the Lord having seen Yerah, the lamb, for the burnt offering. Thus, from this sense, Moriah would sound like from the place where Yahweh sees. But it is important to note that this etymology is placed after the content of the story and not before. When you first hear Moriah, it sounds like Yahweh is bitter. But after the story, you can fully grasp the place where Yahweh sees. It is a Hebrew play on words that is totally untranslatable and necessitates the act of hearing the words instead of just viewing the letters with your eyes. But this is one of the examples which proves that hearing is superior to reading. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will multiply your offspring, as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. The next section is extremely important because, for one, it reinforces the importance of obeying the word of the Lord. Again, Abraham's belief and his trust in the command wasn't enough. He had to actually do what was commanded of him by God. I stress this continuously because this is the calamity of modern Christianity. God doesn't care if you believe in him or not. Even the demons believe and tremble. He cares if you do what he says. Again, read Matthew 25. It's very clear. Next, I also want to stress the importance of the story within the broader narrative of Genesis. We have just heard about Abraham's dealings with the Greek Philistines and their leader, Abimelech. There is some interesting terminology. For one, God makes it clear that through his offspring, all the nations will be blessed. We will see this play out in the story of Isaac, but the key is understanding the totality of all the nations as they were laid out in Genesis 10. God's message, and Torah, is for every nation. Likewise, the mention of the sand on the seashore I feel is no coincidence in that it alludes to the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, which shows up again and again in the scriptural story. The Greeks were invaders from the isles, and they palash, that is, spread out, and thus were pelashtim, which, of course, gets rendered into the English as the Philistines. But through Abraham's promised offspring, through the example of his faith and obedience to God, 
the blessing that God originally gave to Abraham might even extend to the shore of the Mediterranean Sea and beyond. It's wonderful literature. More pastors need to preach on this. And before we move on, I want to remind our hearers that almost every time you hear the word possess in an English Old Testament, you can replace that word with inherit. In verse 17, it says that Abraham's offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. And in English, that makes it sound like the sort of militaristic empire that we are so obsessed with in the West. But that is not the idea here. What it means is that those who are true sons and daughters of Abraham, which means children of Abraham according to the promise, which means they are obedient to God and do his will, these are the ones who will inherit the gate of their enemies, which means God will give their enemies over to them. It doesn't mean they have the right to go in and deal with foreign people and foreign nations, however they personally see fit. This should be obvious, but the harsh translation of yarash, which means inherit, to possess, makes us hear it differently than how it was intended in the greater biblical context, which we can see much more clearly in the book of Joshua. God's people don't possess anything. In fact, they should be the one and only people that recognize the fact that God is the only one who possesses. I also think it is interesting that after this seemingly final act of obedience, like Hagar, Abraham goes and dwells in Beersheba, the well of seven, or as we talked about in our previous episode, with the number being connected to Sabbath rest, the completion of work, and the end of a cycle in general, Abraham's character arc is complete. This is a powerful literature. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also born children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Betuel. Betuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makkah. In this last section, we get some exposition about Abraham's brother Nahor, who will be an important figure because it is through him that Rebekah will be born, and she, of course, will be Isaac's wife. Now, this line of Nahor's is actually pretty ominous once we understand the function of the biblical terminology. Right off the bat, Nahor's name refers to a snickering, as we said in one of our earlier episodes. Milcah, of course, is from the same root as Melech for king, so... That's never good news in the Bible. Ooze refers to a council, uh, particularly to devise or scheme a plan. Its use in Isaiah 10 displays the scheming of the worldly powers against the God of Israel. And we can also think about the character Job, uh, who is also said to have been from the land of Ooze. And one can immediately be reminded of his wife as well as his friends counseling together in order to talk Job into cursing God. So ooze is bad news. Booze means to disrespect or to despise. Kimuel means God has raised, which is really interesting. And his son, Aram, refers to a high place. This ju juxtaposition of the Hebrew calm for rise and Aram for high place is certainly notable. In the Bible, to be in a high place is almost always bad, unless it is God who is the one who is exalted. Remember that Abram was always the quintessential Aramean, in that he was Abram, the exalted father from Babylon. In this sense, 
I can't see this as being anything but negative. If God raises you in this context, it is to make you into an example to your enemies and thus actually humble you. This is not the exaltation that you want. Next, we get the mention of chesed, which is a reference to the kasdim, which are where the uh, Chaldeans uh, were from which Abraham originated. Chaza refers to the animal's breast, and pildash seems to be a combination, perhaps, of the words palada, which means iron, and esh, which refers to fire. This is blacksmithery, essentially. Again, obviously not good, according to scripture. Jidlaf is interesting because it has the connotation of weeping, literally in the sense of the tears dripping from the eyes. Bethuel means God has wasted or God has ended. And then finally, Rebecca has the connotation of tying up an animal. So there's a lot to do with that. I won't theorize exactly how each name functions in the text, but it is clear that it is setting a strong picture for the Babylon that Abraham was called out of. With the next set of names, we have Nahor's concubine, whose name is Reuma. This word comes from Ram, which again means exalted. We only need to be reminded of Abram again. The next name we get is Tabak, which means to slaughter. The way it appears in the English makes it look like Teba, the word for ark in the flood story. Uh, this is just incidental in the English. The Hebrew word is quite different. Geham refers to a flame or something being burned. Tachash refers to leather. And then finally, Maka means to pierce or even emasculate. So this is certainly a line of people that shouldn't sit well with the hearer. It's very effectively placed in the wake of Abraham's display of faith. We are reminded where he came from and preparing for this never-ending cycle of human iniquity. And if we remember the story of Rebecca and Jacob, you can see where this is potentially heading. So join us next week as we continue the story and begin to phase out of Abraham's cycle into the next characters and the next stories. Until then, peace be with all of you. And may your week be agathon.